We are in, for what, for lack of a better term, we're in this little mini-series as we march our way through the book of Romans called The Christian and the Government. This is uh, part three of three, and if you missed any part of it, I commend to you our Facebook feed and to catch up the last couple of weeks. They've been challenging, um, but, uh, but rich. I believe they've been rewarding uh, for us as a church family. So I certainly encourage that, especially given that part of the sermon today literally is to say, we already studied this, so we're moving on. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's all. That's all I'll say on that. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, that's deacon, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant, again, deacon of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, verse 6, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers, again, deacons of God. Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Father, holding your word uh, open as we, as we observed this morning in Sunday school, like in Nehemiah chapter 8, Standing in honor and in reverence and in value and in subordination, we hold your word open as the authority over our lives. And so, Father, teach us. Or as the old prayer uh, would say, what we know not would you teach us, what we have not would you give us, who we are not would you make us, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. I have to admit, I expected an empty sanctuary today. I announced at the end of last week's sermon that next week we would be studying on taxes. <laughs> and yet, gluttons for punishment, here you all are. In a country of waste and government-funded immorality, it can be hard to enthusiastically pay our taxes. The matter of paying taxes constantly before us, Every time we get a receipt at the grocery store, there it is. Here's what the items cost. Here's more money that you paid, and then here's your grand total. Every month when most of you pay your mortgage, your property taxes are escrowed in. Uh, I have the esteemed honor of paying my property taxes in one lump sum once a year. That's a fun check to write. But for most, it's broken down into monthly installments, part of your mortgage. Property tax. Every year when you pay the registration fees on your car, what is that? It's property tax. It's a, it's a tax for owning the car. 
And then you pay tax on the gas that you put in the car, and then you pay tax when you buy new tires to put on the car that you pay taxes for to drive around on the roads that you pay taxes to have paved. All of this is, of course, after you paid income tax on the money that you earned to pay for all these taxes. On and on, there's no escaping it. Furthermore, when you study scripture, you, like we are, you come into contact with instruction and examples of taxes. It's not a long shot to say taxes are part of life and seemingly have been for a long, long time. According to one survey, half of Americans think everyone cheats on their taxes, which means half of Americans are cheating on their taxes, right? Because liars think everyone lies, right? Some certainly do cheat on their taxes. There's an estimated $100 million a year that is not collected as it ought to be according to the tax code. This isn't about write-offs or legal loopholes even. This is an estimation because they can't figure it out exactly. It's an estimation of actual tax fraud. $100 million a year. Uh, Every year since 2011, Senator Rand Paul releases a report on wasteful government spending called the Festivus Report. Now, Seinfeld fans, your ears should should have pricked up a little bit. Yes. The Festivus Report, obviously, San, Senator San Paul, uh, uh, Rand Paul, excuse me, Senator Rand Paul is a uh, Seinfeld fan. Uh, Festivus is a fictitious Christmas alternative in the Costanza family. And the first step of Festivus is the airing of grievances. And so you sit around the dinner table with the food there, and instead of opening with, you know, let's go around the, the table and say what we're thankful for, or an opening prayer, you say, you know what, I got a problem with you, pal, right? And you just air your grievances at this Christmas holiday uh, alternative. Well, the report by Senator Rand Paul is, is, if you will, it's that opening portion of Festivus. It's the airing of grievances, putting out in the open public information that is usually reserved for the eyes of our esteemed elected officials only. Allow me to read for you a few of the highlights. Quote, The Department of Health and Human Services spent $689,222 to study romance between parrots. The NIH funded a $3 million annual research project to watch hamsters on steroids fight. It's like a miniature UFC, I guess. And the Census Bureau spent $2.5 million reminding people to fill out their census forms during Super Bowl commercials. Since 2017, the NIH has given the University of, uh, I don't know if you know how to pronounce this because it's, it's, a, it's a, a Spanish word, so maybe Lester could help me later, but it's a university in Chile, uh, $1.1 million to study the influence of glycine receptors on alcohol consumption by, get this, training mice to get drunk. For the study, quote, Researchers injected two different types of mice with alcohol within a tight enclosure, recorded their behavior over five minutes, and then compared their reactions. Your tax dollars hard at work, my friends. 
You got drunk mice, you got mice on steroids. How can't we just trap them and, and throw them out like, sorry. All of God's creatures. Okay, this is my personal favorite uh, from the Festivus Report. Uh, $118,971 to research if Thanos could snap his fingers while wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. The report helps us, and all of you non-Marvel <clears throat> fans, Thanos, quote, Thanos is a fictional character in the Marvel movie Avengers Infinity War, and many others. I mean, come on. Anyway, in the movie, quote, <clears throat> Thanos sports an infinity gauntlet, which gives the wearer extraordinary powers merely by snapping one's fingers. Inspired by the film, researchers at Georgia Tech convinced grant reviewers at the National Science Foundation to give them the $119,000 to study if a real-life Thanos could actually snap his fingers while wearing the Infinity Gauntlet. These are just a few of the entries, listing a total of $482.3 billion of waste and fraud, this in 2022 alone. What are we to do with this as we come to Romans 13? And for this reason, you also pay your taxes. What are we to do, friends? Revolt. I heard someone say it. Yes. All right. Point one, revolt. No. We're to recognize, if you're taking notes, number one, that this that Paul offers is an unqualified command. It's an unqualified command. It's offered without exception, without qualifier, like the instruction of the opening verses, paying taxes is an act of submission. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so Paul then later says in verse 6, for because of this, for because of what? For because of everything that preceded it. The government bears the sword, they punish the evildoer, and the government is established by God. Good or evil, it is only in place because God in his sovereignty over the whole of humanity has permitted this government to exist. And so for all of these reasons that we've studied for the last two Sundays in a row, I was reviewing one of the sermons recently, and it was an hour. I spoke for an hour, and you sat and listened for an hour about governmental authority. Like two weeks in a row you did this to yourselves. And so it's... For all of those reasons that we've studied so far, for the same reason, we pay taxes. It's an act of submission. It is not dependent upon the character of the governing authorities. Paying taxes is an extension of that opening command. And as Christians, we certainly cannot promote being among those contributing to the $100 million annual tax shortfall. That would be to license sin in the name of some kind of twisted Christian integrity. So that doesn't work. Now, as we'll see, taxes are meant to provide resources for the protection of the population, the reinforcement of culture, care for the poor, among other things. So we just note, first of all, outright, based on the last two hours of sermons that I can't re-preach right now for you, 
I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know you're very disappointed. Based on that, we recognize, number one, that this is offered as an unqualified command. Number two, we would note that the tax system is a reasonable system. It's a reasonable system. The Bible offers a tax system as a reasonable one. Let's explore it. First, we'll explore tax and abuse in Scripture. So the taxes themselves and then the abuse of those taxes. And then we'll explore that same thing in the first century recipients of Paul's letter originally in Rome. In Genesis, God gave to Joseph the wisdom to tax the farmers of Egypt. One-fifth of their annual crop during that seven years of plenty. This was the first half of Pharaoh's very troubling dream. When the seven years of famine then later came, the country was preserved from starving to death because, well, they had stored up this one-fifth from the years of plenty. It was then distributed, and it was protected by the sword of the government, so it couldn't be stolen, it couldn't be abused. That one-fifth tax became a, a standard ongoing statute in Egypt thereafter. And it was established by the wise man of God who was supernaturally put into that place, both by the interpretation of a dream and also by the providential hand of God having him sold into slavery to wind up in Egypt to begin with. As Joseph said at the end of Genesis, what you, my brothers, meant for evil, selling me into slavery. God meant for good, for the preservation of life. And so God established his man in his position and gave him the wisdom to establish the tax. In Exodus and Leviticus, we move from a pagan country to now a theocracy in Israel. God introduced various taxes for national life in Israel. Some of the taxes introduced were for the operation of the temple, known as the temple tax. Others were to promote and provide for cultural improvement and support. This was the nature of the offering of first fruits and so forth. These requirements are called offerings. It's your offering of first fruits. It's the offering of the firstborn. It's the offering of the one-tenth of your flocks. But, but they're mandatory. They're called offerings, but they're a tax. They in no way, scripturally, refer to a free will act of love and gratitude toward God. It's a mandatory tax system God establishes for Israel. He says, on top of these things, you can give freely to the Lord as, a, as an act of worship and gratitude. But these things are required. They're a tax. They would promote their national identity and reinforce the culture as Israelites. They were designed so that the people would never forget where they came from. As they gave and celebrated, they would be reminded. I was speaking with a friend about how essentially the, the entire system that got established for the calendar of Israel, the yearly festivals and feasts and the removal from your normal course of life to stopping and celebrating, it was all meant to remember, remember, remember. Remember what? Remember Ezekiel chapter 16, how God birthed the nation and then how God clothed and wrapped the nation like a bride. 
It would not exist if not for God's supernatural love and provision and miraculous intervention. A barren man and a barren woman, a hundred years old apiece, and God said, I'll make from you a great nation. And they went, what? Like my wife would say, I'm done having kids. Sarah was a hundred. Those years were behind her. And yet God supernaturally breathed life into a nation. And so the whole year they would stop and stop and stop. And every third year they would pay a tax. And every seventh year they would not harvest their crops. All to do what? Remember, remember, remember where we came from. Why we're here. How it is that I have breath in my lungs and I exist at all. It's because of what God has done. So the taxes reinforced their identity and their worship. It's good. God God instituted a field tax to provide for the poor, a welfare system. Crops, as many of you know, are not to be harvested in Israel all the way to the edges of the fields. You harvest the middle portion and you leave the edges unharvested. What's that for? That's so that the poor can come and glean. It's not a handout. They have to come get it. They have to come work. They have to come gather and it'd be labor intensive, but it was for them. It was compassionate. That's where the story of Ruth begins. She's poor and she's gleaning. Not her, but help me out. Is it Naomi? No, Naomi's the mom. Go ahead, tell me. I forget. Okay, I had it right. Okay, Naomi's the mother-in-law, and and Ruth is the one gleaning. Good, I just, uh, when I start talking off my notes, I immediately begin to question myself. Am I remembering that correctly? So, it's the internal conversation going on up here. The same thing happens whenever one of you get up. You know, I'm like, oh, does they have to go to the bathroom, or are they bored? (laughs) And I'm, I'm doing point number two, but that's what's happening back here. You know what I mean? So the fields weren't to be harvested all the way to the edges. This was a reasonable option, right? I mean, the field owner would, would, you would think, would participate in this activity gladly, wouldn't they? No, it was a tax. Think about it. This is profit forfeited for the sake of the poor. It's a field tax. Furthermore, every seventh year, as many of you again know, those fields were to lay fallow. They were to not sow or reap. They were to let grow what would grow for man and beast. And so whatever would grow, they could go pick it up, but they could not sow and plant and reap a harvest. However, there's also a provision made that if you're poor and you don't own any fields, you can go into someone's field on that seventh year of rest and you can plant, you can sow, reap, and harvest like a corner of that plot for yourself because you're poor and you would probably starve to death otherwise because you rely on those fields edges being ready to be gleaned right so an interesting thing another tax every seventh year no money no profit meanwhile the poor are planting on your land and they get to legally it's a tax friends 
I commend to you for further reading if you'd like to read up on some of these things in their detail, because, it, to, because to read all of the cross-references would be um, labor-intensive for us. I commend to you these here up on the screen, Exodus 19 and 23, Leviticus 27, 30 through 33, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 12, and 14. So we'll just leave that up there, and you guys can jot that down if you'd like. What we recognize in all of this is that the, the tax system was a good and wise system, First, inspired in the mind of God's man in Egypt. Secondly, inspired and written into the law code of his people, Israel. But like all good things that God gives to us, sinful man has a way of spoiling things. Right? We abuse all of God's gifts. That's how MacArthur puts it. We abuse all of God's good gifts. Yeah. Even we, we abuse the gift of labor. We abuse the gift of marriage, the the gift of physical intimacy. We abuse the, the deliciousness of food. We abuse these things to our own detriment. And so too, it can be said of the tax system. Sinful man has a way of abusing and spoiling it. A few examples. In Second Kings 12, I uh, know, First Kings 12, it speaks to the excess taxes that Solomon put on Israel. After Solomon's death, the elders of the people came and they pleaded with his son, Rehoboam, to ease the burden of taxes that Solomon had put on them to fund his massive projects. He foolishly refused and the country split. Now, for what it's worth, the context of Rehoboam's foolish refusal was because instead of listening to the old men, he listened to the young men. That's just Bible, all right? And the older I get, the more I appreciate that. That was a, a joke, by the way. <laughs> Need like guys up here with the little signs to flip. Applause, laughter, ah, you know, like. Second Kings 23 records an event where the Pharaoh of Egypt had captured the king of Israel in, a, in, a, in an intention between Israel and Egypt. He captured the king, and he set up a puppet king in his place. He was related to the king, but he wasn't the rightful heir. He was to be sympathetic towards Egypt. His name was Eliakim, renamed later to Jehoiakim. And in case Ezekiel students here in the room from midweek, yes, that's the same Jehoiakim we studied this past Wednesday night. This King Jehoiakim was to collect extra taxes from the people of Israel in order to pay off the Pharaoh in Egypt. Basically, it was a peace tax. Pay this tribute, and we, Egypt, will not invade and destroy you. But it was a foreign tax on the people being spent not on social programs, not on religious or government enrichment for the nation. It was just to pay off the Egyptians. Can you imagine a situation where you have a king or a president who is more loyal to an enemy nation than to his own country. And he gets rich off of it while holding the levers of power. Can you imagine a situation like that? No comment. No comment. It's an underhanded dig, by the way. Um, in Ezra, Nehemiah, we studied this morning in Sunday school, we, we read from chapter 9, I believe it was, where they said, we are paying taxes to a foreigner, we are in great distress because of our sin. And they were. 
The people were paying taxes to a foreign king, to the king of Persia. They were having to borrow against their own land in order to pay the taxes. That's how abusive and oppressive the tax code had become, polluted by the sin of man. It's recorded also that Nehemiah did not take his, his allotment as the governor while he was stationed there as his predecessors did. What was that allotment? Taxes from the people. And instead, he provided for himself out of his personal wealth, and he provided for all of his, if you will, his cabinet out of his own pocketbook. Why did he do this? Because the people were poor, and these taxes had become oppressive. It was a reasonable system polluted by sin that had become oppressive. Nehemiah was unique in that he did this. Now, as we return to Romans chapter 13, in case you're tempted to think that our tax system is more immoral than the context into which Paul was speaking, let's consider for a moment. First, you've got that tax and then abuse in the whole of Scripture, but let's consider the tax and abuse system in first century Rome. On the day Paul penned these words and sent them by the hand of his companion to be carried to the church in Rome, read among the body like this, copied and passed along. On that day, Caesar was hailed as a god. The worship of Caesar through token payment and the burning of incense in a ceremonial show of public support was legally required by law in Rome. Hail Caesar as Lord, as God. So the whole system, the whole entire tax code was headed up by idol worship. Now as bad as our government might be and as much waste as there might be, as much as the media treats some of our politicians like demons and others like gods, no one is actually enforcing the worship of our president as divine. That would make it harder to pay your taxes, wouldn't it? So as a Christian in the first century Roman Empire, paying taxes was literally paying into a system of pagan idol worship. The Roman tax system was also oppressive and violent. Tax collectors were essentially mafia-style intimidation squads. You'd have the official, and you'd have his boys. And they would go around, business to business, household to household. Where's our money? Without the Jersey accents, right? Through the strength of physical threats, The power to imprison, fine, and more, they were allowed to collect as much tax as they wanted. You owed 10, they could collect 100. You owed 100, they could collect 1,000. There was no limit to what they could do to you. And they were the muscle, and they could arrest you if you didn't give it up. They could collect as much as they wanted as long as their Roman authorities got what was required of them. So they received a salary, They were required to turn in X number of dollars, but they could remunerate, they could could acquire from the citizens Y, Z, A, B, C, D dollars, and all of that would just go to their personal 
enrichment. This is why the Hebrew tax collectors were so hated by their countrymen. The population knew they were being stolen from, they were being abused, they were being threatened, and now here's one of our own brothers in league with the abusers. In the case of the Hebrew-like Nicodemus, he was stealing from his own kin, stealing from his own family. That's how the Hebrews think of themselves. You might say that Hebrew tax collectors, quote-unquote, sold their soul to the devil because they made a, a pact, essentially. They would be hated. Their job was not fulfilling. But if, as a first-century Hebrew, if you're willing to endure a miserable, soulless, spineless existence, you can make a lot of money. And they did. So much so that when Nicodemus repented of his sins to follow Jesus, he, quote, bore the fruit of repentance, as John the Baptist would say. And he paid back all that he had defrauded four times over what he stole from them. Understand that, friends. So lucrative was this profession that he could quadruple the excess for everyone who he had defrauded and pay it back to them. Now, that's a bit on the personal level. But we should note that on the broad scale, the Roman Empire would tax its citizens to fund the lavish lifestyles of a very immoral empirical family. And when the people would get restless, when things weren't going so well, when money was tight, when food was short, and grumblings would start about the state of the empire, Caesars would often put on weeks, even months of festivals at the Colosseum. Games, they'd call them. Let's have games. These would include food for everyone, drinks, and entertainment to distract the masses from the real problem. In most cases, that entertainment was violent, men fighting to the death, men fighting beasts, theatrical performances of gladiators playing roles in a play as they fight to the death. At various points, these games included the singling out of Jews and Christians as fodder, kindling, if you will, for the fire, fodder for the bloodlust of these games. So get this, friends. You put it all together. Christians were being commanded to pay tax into a system that would use those tax dollars to arrest them for being Christians and then use them as pawns in bloody, violent games to entertain the population. All paid for by their own dollars. That's pretty messed up. And it certainly represents a worse situation than we find ourselves in. Certainly not better. We are tempted to come to these things and say, well, that was first century times. We live in different times. No, it, it was harder to obey then than it is today. Harder, not easier. What are we to do then? What are we to do then? Well, we pay taxes as an unqualified command, number one. We recognize that it's a reasonable system for the good and the protection of the people spoiled by sin, but ultimately we must recognize that paying taxes, friends, is, number three, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. I want to invite you to join me over in Matthew chapter 17.
Matthew 17, and let's begin in verse 24, a well-known story to many of us. When they came to Capernaum, verse 24, I still hear pages flipping. I'll give you a second. You guys would lose the Bible drill. Like, like hard. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yeah, huh? Yes, he does. Right? Like kids, like kids do. Yeah, huh? And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, Well, from others, Jesus said to him, Well, then the sons are free. However, Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The two drachma tax. The drachma was no longer really in circulation. A shekel represented four drachmas or the payment for two. And so what Jesus had him do in paying one shekel for two of them was actually the, was pretty common. You know, two men would, hey, you, you split a coin? All right. And you would go in together and, and you'd pay for the both of you. It's an interesting thing as you consider the words of Jesus. He says, and something fascinating about this, right? He says, the sons are free. But we'll pay it not to offend them, but really the sons are free. Who are the sons? Well, it's, it's the sons of God, right? From whom do the kings of the earth collect tax? Who is the king of the earth? Yeah, it's God. Yeah. And so does the son of God, do his children pay? No. But we don't want to offend them. We don't want to offend their conscience. We don't want to offend their sensibilities. We don't want to give them fuel for the fire. So here's a snappy little miracle for the pages of the Bible. (laughs) Go catch a fish, the fish will have a coin in its mouth. Now, this is not an endorsement for fishing, but I think all of you should try this. Um, Go fish and see if there's money in the fish's mouth. Uh, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David, the throne on which Herod sat. That's his seat. That's Jesus' seat. Pilate would have been his subordinate, not his authority. And yet Jesus offered that counsel to Peter. Jesus is the true high priest. He's the king of kings. The tax should be paid to him for the temple, not by him. And yet Jesus offered the same counsel to Peter. Let us not offend them. This is to say... I, Jesus, I will be arrested for truthfully declaring my identity as the Son of God. I will be arrested for 
being the Messiah. I will be arrested for saying I and the Father are one. I won't muddy the waters with tax nonsense. They're not going to arrest me on a technicality. They're going to arrest me because I say the truth. Right? It's great. John MacArthur points out the same authorities that were going to kill Jesus and pay off Judas were asking for money from him for the temple tax. So a portion of the temple tax Jesus miraculously made appear would go to pay off Judas to betray him. A portion of the temple tax that Jesus would have miraculously appear in the fish of a mouth would go to hire men to lie in court about him as he was carted from one location to the next through the wee hours of the morning, all through the night. Men lied, hired by the priests about the words and actions of Jesus. Paid for in part by his miraculous temple tax. That's fascinating, isn't it? I want us to note three things about Jesus when it comes to taxes in this particular situation that are helpful for us. For Jesus, the mission was always front and center. He came to seek and to save the lost. Nothing would be allowed to detract from that nor distract him from that. Two good words, friends, for us. We would not want any of our conduct to detract from our gospel proclamation. That is to say, to undermine it, to steal from it, to cheapen it. And nothing Jesus would do would detract from his mission to cheapen his his presence on earth. Nor would it be allowed to distract him from his mission. Yeah, whatever. Pay it. So for Jesus, the mission was always front and center. Secondly, for Jesus, the perspective of the eternal kingdom was always in the background. Mission front and center, perspective of the eternal kingdom always in the background. Jesus knows he is the king of the world, and one day he will return as the rightful king that he is. But until that day, when he returns as judge... He is the suffering servant, extending an open hand to all who would repent. Let us be agents of grace above all else, having the same eternal perspective of the kingdom of God, always in the back of our minds. Finally, for Jesus, taxes are nothing. Taxes are nothing. Because nothing is impossible or even hard for God. Have you ever wondered how the coin got in the fish's mouth? It would be easy to dismiss it and say, well, Jesus could, without saying a word, manifest a perfect Roman coin in the mouth of a fish in the sea. He could. He could fabricate it out of thin air. But if you read the text of Scripture... And the way that miraculous things happen, God often uses natural means to accomplish supernatural purposes. He blew the wind that carried the locusts that were part of the plague in Egypt. He blew the wind that parted the seas. He sent hornets to go and and terrorize 
nations and peoples in the land of Canaan so that when Israel showed up, they didn't even have to fight that battle. God fought it ahead of time with hornets. And if you've ever been around a hornet, you know that would work. All right? That's it. We're moving. Right? Gnarly little buggers, man. God often he uses the natural. Where were the locusts before they were blown into the land of Egypt? Well, they were wherever they are. Where were the hornets before God used them to drive out peoples from Canaan? They were hanging out, doing basketball, I guess, right? So where was the coin? This is how I see it, and this is the only way that I can understand it in the whole text of Scripture. A fisherman dropped a coin. As would happen, you've dropped a coin. And a fish swallowed it. That fish then would not be able to eat normally. Maybe a day passes, two days, maybe a week, and that fish is hungry. And at the first sight of a glimmering hook in the water, it thinks, oh, there's some food, let me try and eat it. And it snatches on to an empty hook. What did Jesus say? Throw a hook in the water. Did he say throw a baited hook in the water? Did he say find some bait and throw it in the water? Did he say, cast your net and catch the fish? He said, put a hook in the water. Now, is it implied that he would have put bait on it because he's a reasonable human being? Maybe. Where's he going to get it? I don't know. I'm just saying. God often uses the natural to accomplish the supernatural. And now, the first glimmering sign of food bites onto an empty hook, and there's your coin. What's the point, friends, in all of this ridiculous exercise? Well, friends, to Jesus, taxes are nothing. When it comes to taxes, health, the worries of tomorrow, anything else, we have a good Father who watches over us. We need not fret or worry. Meanwhile, all the energy not wasted on worry can be spent proclaiming the gospel. Have you thought about how much time and energy you've spent worrying? fretting can you imagine bottling that energy up and using it exclusively for the proclamation of the gospel boldly to your children boldly to your co-workers boldly to your community how much energy how many minutes how much effort how much brain power do we waste on things that are they're nothing to Jesus this is easy pickings for Jesus well, let us echo the sentiment of second century Justin Martyr as he addresses his rulers, and we'll allow this to close us down. Everywhere, Martyr says, everywhere we Christians more readily than all men endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you may be found to possess also sound judgment." 
In this way, friends, we might actually be able to pay our taxes cheerfully. Because after all, it's only money. Right? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word and the encouragement we find in it to hold all things into proper perspective. You are a good father who uh, has provided, does provide, and watches over us. Should we worry and fret and fear? Should we wring our hands at the immorality of those who are over us? Uh, Lord, we are given great perspective in these verses. May in all these things we find simple obedience to your commands to bring peace uh, to our souls. And may we spend our energy studying your scriptures, uh, being molded into your image, and proclaiming your gospel. For Christ's sake, amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends.